0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, in the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, What then are we to sin because... We are not under the law, but under grace. By no means do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. F.F. F. Bruce once wrote Those who have been justified are now being sanctified, and those who have no experience of present sanctification have no reason to suppose they have been justified. Well, I want to welcome you back to our series on the book of Romans entitled The Power of the Gospel. As, uh, as you're aware, we took a short break from Romans and we spent about six weeks. In a series about living on mission for Christ. And with that, the truth is these things are related. Because if there are two things that we are passionate about here at First Baptist Church in Boron, it is about the gospel and it is about the mission of Christ. As we have said on many occasions, we exist for these two things. That's why we say that we are a loving community of Christ followers passionately in pursuit of Jesus. We, we are seeking to follow where Jesus leads, and that we are deeply connected to one another and completely committed to sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world. We are all in for, for the mission of Christ and bringing the gospel to the world. And as Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so we spent six weeks talking about the mission of Christ and our part in that. And now we return to our in-depth examination of the gospel that Paul presents in Romans. In fact, if you remember, the book of Romans is Paul's masterpiece and is the most complete exposition of the gospel in the entire Bible. We understand the gospel as well as we understand it because of the book of Romans. Because in this letter, Paul sets out to clearly communicate what the gospel is. Right? And he communicates the blessings that the gospel gives to those who believe. And he explains to us how the gospel works. And then Paul answers the common objections to the gospel. And then he explains in the last half of the book of Romans how believers to live in light of the truth of the gospel. The letter to the Romans is the master treatment of the gospel. And that is why we as a church are making our way through the letter It's so that we, as a church family, can be steeped and saturated by the truth of the gospel so that we can can know it deeply and then we can communicate it clearly. Now, that being said, today's text is a bit heavy. And so I want to take a moment to look at verse 19 just right from the outset because I want you to notice what Paul says here. This is important. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitation. I think this is a very important statement because what it does is it reminds us of a very important truth. And that is the gospel is the work of God. It is not the work of man. It is the work of God. And what we need to keep in mind with respect to God right, is that God is completely different from us. One of the most important truths that we as Christ followers need to continually remind ourselves of and keep in mind is the truth that God is completely holy, that he is set apart, that he is unique and not like us, that God is unlike anything else in the universe. This is why there's a prohibition against idolatry and making idols of God, because nothing we could make could ever represent God, because he is eternal and everything else including the universe is temporal god is self-existent and independent and everything else is exists because of god and is dependent upon him god is all powerful and we are not god is all knowing he knows the past present and future and all possibilities we can't even remember what we had for lunch yesterday God is perfectly wise. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous. He is all the things that we are not. And though we may be created in God's image, He is not like us. He is altogether different from us. In fact, Paul make, I mean, God Himself makes it very clear in Isaiah fifty five, verses five through nine. He says, I mean, "If there is a set of verses again worth remembering, it's this: For my thoughts are not your thoughts." Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That is the truth that we need to understand. God is different from us. And oftentimes the truth about him and how he relates to us is difficult to understand because we have limitations, as Paul says. He tells us, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. We have limitations in how we're able to understand God and what he does. We can only understand things that we really have a reference point for. And because we are limited to human language and, you know, and human analogies, oftentimes the words that we use to communicate the truth about God fall short. And so what Paul is saying is the analogies that he's using in this text have their limitations. What Paul says here in human language is difficult to fully grasp because Paul in this text is attempting to unpack for the Roman church an important truth that we've already touched on the last time we were in Romans. And that is this tension that exists in the truth that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and the truth that those who are saved will still live lives that are not defined by sin. In fact, he's attempting to answer the objection being raised in verse 15 here. Paul recites for us an objection to the gospel that he's probably heard many times before, right? What then are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Since we are not under the law but under grace, right, does that mean that obedience doesn't matter? Does that mean that we can just sin and do whatever we want? And Paul immediately says, by no means. And Paul then begins using human examples to explain why. He uses the analogy here about slavery and servitude and obedience to help paint a picture of the truth. But this analogy still falls short of fully explaining of how it works. In fact, one of the toughest, this is probably one of the toughest texts in Romans And it's not one of the toughest texts in the New Testament to fully unpack. There's a lot here, right, in these few verses. And Paul says we have natural limitations, and so we must use human language to communicate with us. Now, I bring this up because, as I said, there's a lot in this text today. I've really been praying for six weeks, getting to this text on how to approach this. Do I break this up into three more sermons, or do I just you know, or do I just get to the heart of the issue, right? I mean, the reality is, is there's a lot here and I don't want to lose you in the weeds, right? There's a, there's a lot of theology and a number of difficult expressions in this text. Even Paul says it's a bit difficult to understand. And so with that, I'm, I'm going to do my best to help unpack this for you, right? Because the truth of this text is important, but, but I want to keep this from turning into a three-hour lecture on Greek grammar and the various perspectives on how to interpret all the various issues in the text. And so it may seem I'm going to go pretty fast today. And you still, after we're done, may have questions about the different issues in the text. And that is okay. In fact, if you have questions, I'd be happy to address them. Right, Just shoot me an email or a text or give me a call. I'll be happy to walk through all the various perspectives till your heart is content. And if you raise a big enough issue, I might even come back and just briefly do a little... Treatment on it. But with that, right, there are three things I want you to see in this text today. Three things I think that will help you to understand what Paul is actually driving at. There are three things that will help you to understand better of what it means to follow Christ based on what Paul is getting here. And, 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 and they are, number one, we are to serve. We all serve something or someone. That's the first thing to keep in mind, is that we all serve someone or something. We all do, whether we serve God or something else. And this is really going to be important for us to keep our heads wrapped around as we go through this text. Number two, right? and you'll see this, but number two, serving or obeying sin leads to destruction and death, but serving God leads to life. This is an important argument that Paul is going to explain And he's going to use this to explain how Christians are to live. Number three, justification is by grace through faith, but sanctification is by grace and grace-driven effort. And that might not make a lot of sense right now in this moment, but as we walk through this text, these three points will become a lot more clear as we go along. They will help you to see what Paul is talking about. If I can help you to see these three things and we will have successfully walked through this part of, of Romans. Now, before we, we jump all the way in here, let's just remember and think about where we are in the text. Let's think about the context right, of where we are in the letter. If you remember, Paul wrote the letter to the Romans to explain what the gospel is in complete detail. He begins by explaining that, that, that the gospel is the power of God for those who believe it. And he begins to tell us exactly what the gospel is. He, he says, beginning in chapter 1, that it's the bad news that all of humanity is in rebellion to God and is rightfully under God's wrath and his judgment. That's everyone, including Jews and Gentiles, men and women, black or white, It doesn't matter who you are, all of humanity is by nature sinful and hateful towards God. And because of that, all of man deserves wrath, which he will pour out on those who were in their sin. People say, we want justice. No, you don't. You want mercy is what you want, right? Right? That's the bad news. But the good news is, is that we can be spared God's wrath and we can be reconciled to God because of what Christ has done. We have received that gift by faith in Christ. We are justified by faith in Jesus alone. That's the good news right? That's the good news that we take out to the rest of the world. It did not matter who you are. It did not matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you have done. If you believe the gospel, if you put your faith in Christ as your savior, then you were saved. That's what the gospel is. And then in Romans chapter five, Paul begins to unpack and explain the blessing that the gospel gives to those who trust in him. Paul says that if you're justified by faith, if we are justified by faith, we have peace with God and reconciliation with God. We have access to to God and His grace. We also have the gift of the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God in our hearts. And we have the assurance of our faith because God has proved His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died to save us. That's the blessings of the gospel. And then halfway through Romans chapter 5, Paul begins to explain to us then how the gospel works. How is it that we can be saved by grace through faith? He explains that we can be saved by by faith in Christ because he is our substitute. He is our representative before God. He is our federal or new covenant head. In the same way that we were born in sin because of Adam, who was our first representative, how he fell from righteousness and brought sin into the world, we fell in him. But by faith in Christ, we are removed out of Adam and under Adam's headship and placed in Christ under his. And because of that, our sins are atoned for by Christ's atoning death on the cross and his righteous standing that he earned in his life is granted to us or credited to us so that we can then have a right relationship with the Father. Christ became our new covenant representative With God by faith. We are made right with God by faith in Christ and what He has done. That's how the gospel works. Then in chapter 6, Paul begins to deal with the tension between being saved by grace through faith and the very real expectation that those who are in Christ will not continue to live lives that are dominated by sin. Not to say that those in Christ won't sin from time to time, right? but they won't live lives that are dominated or defined by sin. They won't live in unrepentant sin. But for some reason, the human mind seems to think that being saved by grace means the law no longer matters. For some reason, the human mind wants to believe That being saved by grace means God's standard of righteousness by which he judges the world somehow has changed and that sin no longer is an issue. For some reason, humanly speaking, our minds equate grace with a license to sin. That somehow grace and the law are mutually exclusive. And if you look at, at the Christian world around you, if you look at... American Christianity, you see that that really explains a lot of what we see in the landscape. Because so many people think that God's grace means that the law is irrelevant and sin isn't a big deal anymore. So many people believe that if you just, if I just walk down the aisle, if I'll just, you know, make an emotional profession of faith, that I am saved no matter what, even if I live like a demon. Well, Paul begins to address this issue in chapter six. And he began by asking the question in verse one, if grace abounds where sin abounds, then should we not continue to sin so the grace of God would abound all the more? Or in other words, if grace is made manifest and put on display because of our sin, shouldn't we just sin a lot more so there'd be a lot more grace for the world to see? And Paul says, no way. And he explains that in a very real way, believers have been supernaturally united with Christ. And because of that union and because Christ is our covenantal representative, we, along with Christ, have died to sin. And Paul explains that not only have we died to sin with Christ, but we have been raised a new life with Christ. And because of that, and because of our union with Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. That, that, that sin no longer has mastery over us because we're not in Adam anymore. We are in Christ. We are free from the bondage of sin. And as such, Paul says, we ought to use our bodies, right? And our body parts specifically, not as weapons of sin, but instead we'd use those things as, as instruments or weapons of righteousness. We ought to pursue righteousness in our lives. Paul says, since we are new creatures with brand new natures, because of this union with Christ, sin is not our master. We ought to live that way. We ought to live lives as those who've been set free. And he says, if this is because we are not under the law, but under grace, we ought to live lives that honor God because God by his grace has set us free. But again, the human mind struggles with this as we will see in the text today. In fact, Paul in today's text addresses the same issue by addressing another objection to the gospel, right? which is found in verse 15. What then are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Since we are under grace, does that mean that the law doesn't matter anymore? Since grace is what saves us from our sin and not our obedience to the law, does that mean that the law doesn't matter, right? To the point that we can just sin all we want. Since we're under grace, can we just live like the rest of the world lives? That way we don't have to really like press so hard out against the world. Can we just live like the world lives, sinning as if it's not a problem? And I'm going to tell you right now, when you see a lot of what's passed for the American church, they would say yes, right? Because again, the human mind wants to see grace and the law as mutually exclusive. But Paul, again, issues the answer in the Greek that is very emphatic. He says, right, It's translated, by no means, but really it means, may that never be. Or, may the Lord never allow that to happen. Or more, to our language, there's no way in the world. No, we are not to sin since we're under grace. Now, Paul has already addressed the issue this issue in the first part of chapter six. But for some reason, this is a truth that many people struggle to reconcile. Again, let me, I want you to hear me. It is true. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, period. That's the basis of our salvation. And we cannot earn God's love, right? And our obedience to the law has nothing at all to do with making us right with God. In fact, our attempts to make God love us by obeying the law is heretical, And and, and those who think that our good deeds help us to be saved are not believers. In fact, I had an interaction online with somebody who tried to explain how he understood repentance. And he said, we are saved by grace only after all that we can do. Now, I'm not going to mention what group that he comes from. We're pretty familiar with that. But I told him, I said, "That that is heresy. That's the the complete opposite of the gospel. The gospel is you can't do it no matter what. We're not saved by what we do, but by what Christ has done and our faith in that. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are justified by faith apart from works. That is the immutable, unchangeable truth of the gospel. But what Paul has been arguing to this point Is the salvation that God works in us by His grace has supernaturally affected us at the most basic level? That we, in a very real sense, are not what we once were, we were something altogether new. We died to sin in Christ. The hardened heart of stone that we once had has been pulled out and replaced with a heart of flesh. And we have been raised to new life in Christ. That's exactly what our baptism symbolizes, by the way, that we died and we've been raised to new life. That in a very real way, we've been radically transformed and changed as Sinners in Adam, we were once slaves to sin who had no choice. We were dead, as the Bible tells us, in our sins and trespasses. But in Christ, we have been set free. In Christ, we now live, and we can live for God. In Christ, we've been radically altered in our fundamental nature. So no, we are not to continue sinning and living a life defined by sin. Now with that, what Paul has not been saying as some who take obedience to the law seriously would say, Paul is not saying that if you are in Christ now, you better start following the law. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you better start making a list of rules and you better start checking yourself every day and make sure that you are really in the kingdom. You better start memorizing the Torah and you better start obeying the Torah, otherwise you're not saved. He's not saying that. He's not saying you better get serious about sin and obeying the law. That's not what Paul is saying. See, Paul doesn't fall into either error, apathy towards sin or legalism. Paul isn't saying that obedience is required for salvation. What Paul is, has been arguing is that by the grace of God, those who were in Christ now have the ability to live for God and to choose to be obedient. That those who were in Christ will, by their nature, begin to choose just that because they are free of sin they have been raised a new life they have been made alive with Christ and paul in this text helps the romans and us to see that those who were in Christ now have a new master notice how he responds do you not know this is how he responds to the question by the way do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one whom you obey And this brings us to the first point I wanted you to keep in mind. The truth is that we are all obedient to something or someone. We are all obedient to someone. We are all enslaved on some level to something. We all serve someone. We are either serving and obedient to God or we're serving or obedient to something else, whether it's our own ego, whether it is our culture, whether it is our desire to be rich and famous, which is the way of America, whether it's our fear of rejection, whether it's whatever else, we all serve something. But but big picture, Paul says we're either serving God or we're serving sin. And as we talked about before, right? Before Christ, while we were in Adam, we didn't have the ability to serve God. Right. The, the scriptures make that clear because we were by nature, what? Children of wrath. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Right? We were unable to obey God. We were unable to live for Him. And so we only had one choice, and that was to serve our sin nature. We did what our sin nature bid us to do. And we were very obedient slaves. We, we were willing slaves to sin willingly submitted to its power and powerless to escape it on our own. But again, in Christ, we have been set free. In fact, Paul says in verse 17, but thanks be to God that you have, that you who were once slaves of sin have, been, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of, of teaching to which you have been committed, which is the gospel, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now there's a lot here to talk about but I want to focus here, All right? Paul said that we were once slaves of sin and we have been set free. We have been set free from, slave, from, the, from slavery to sin. Sin was our master, but not any longer. But notice he doesn't say, I want you to hear me. Notice he doesn't say that we've been completely set free. Right. We are not set free to be on our own. He says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of something else. And this is important for us, right? Because no one is ever completely free. I don't care who you are and what you think. No one in this world is completely autonomous. No one is completely free from all obligations. No one is a a law unto themselves. Now, a lot of people in our culture you know, today believe that they possess true libertarian free will and they're able to live however they want and live, live lives that are not obligated you know, or, or enslaved to anyone or anything. But that's just simply not true. We are all obligated and enslaved to something or someone, even in this physical world, and this physical life. As Americans, we are still obligated to federal law. You still have to pay them taxes. Because guess what will happen if you don't? The government will get theirs. Right. And we are still obligated to the, to the law of California. Our lives are heavily influenced by what comes out of Sacramento, whether we like it or we don't. And we were obligated to pay our bills. Just try not paying them for a long time. Right. You'll find out that you're not very free. And we must serve someone or something to be able to pay our bills. Whether we have jobs or we're on assistance, we're not completely free. No one is completely free. And it's the same thing spiritually. We all serve something. We all worship something. We are bound to something or someone. We either are slaves of sin or we are slaves of righteousness or the author of righteousness, which is God. There is no in-between, by the way. We will all serve something or someone. There is no neutral ground as we've said many times before, there's only two kinds of people in the world: those that are in the kingdom and those who are not in the kingdom. That's really how the world gets divided up. There are those who are in Christ and those who are not. There are those who are slaves of sin, and there are slaves of righteousness. There is no in between. And notice Paul makes a point to explain that those who, or what, explain that that, that what we serve or who we serve has huge consequences for our lives. He says. He says that, that's, that you're slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then he further says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed for the end of those things is death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and is end, eternal life who you serve radically has different consequences for your life. Right? The consequences of sin is what? It's death. And we know that. In fact, that's the second point I wanted you to be aware of and to, to keep in mind as we go through this text. The consequence of obedience to sin is death. As Paul says, at the end of this scripture, the wages of sin is what? Death. The outworking of sin is death. Paul, if you remember, in Romans chapter 5 said, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And and Adam's sin brought what? Death. And death spread to everyone because everyone sinned. This is an immutable truth and we know it. Sin always brings death in some form. And not only does it bring physical death and spiritual death, it brings death to every part of our lives and we've seen it, right? We have seen how sin destroys families. Sin destroys friendships. Sin like pride and betrayal and gossip can kill friendships. We've all experienced that. Sin destroys communities. I mean, look at how sin, the sin of addiction and the sin of laziness and the sin of unforgiveness has been destroying our community from the inside out. Those who've lived here in Boron for any length of time will say, this is not the same town that they lived in before. Sin destroys and kills marriages. The sin of neglect, the sin of infidelity, the sin of jealousy can kill a marriage. Sin destroys jobs and careers too. How many people have lost their job because of sin? How many people's careers, including so many pastors we see in the news, how many of their careers have been destroyed because of sin? The natural, immutable byproduct of sin is death and destruction. You cannot have one without the other. And as Paul is saying, we once were enslaved to sin, and because of that, we were destined to experience all manner of death. But most importantly, we're going to experience permanent death, which is hell. Now, the point that Paul is making here is like the one he made when he asked, how can someone who died to sin still live in it? I mean, we can ask the question this way, how is someone who has been born again, who has been redeemed by God, who has been set free from the bondage to sin, how are they going to live a life where they're willingly choosing death by voluntarily giving themselves back over to slavery to sin? That's the question he's asking. That's the point. Serving sin leads to destruction. How can anyone who has been radically transformed willingly choose a life, willingly choose to live a life again that is completely dominated by sin and death? And the answer is he can't and he won't because he has been made new. He has new desires, new affections, a new heart. He has been united with Christ. He has been set free from sin. He has a new master. Again, Paul says, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave of the one, of the, of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you have You who have, were once slaves of sin, have been become obedient to the heart of the standard, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Those who have been set free from sin have a new master, and Paul calls this new master obedience in verse sixteen, and then righteousness in verse eighteen. But then he calls our new master God in verse twenty-two. That's the point that he's making. Now, without getting too deep into the theological weeds the master that Paul is ultimately talking about here is Christ. Christ is our new master. He is our Lord. He is the one who purchased us from the slave market of sin. We belong to him. And the consequences of being obedient to Christ, right? By the way, how are we obedient to Christ? By believing the gospel and trusting in him alone the consequences of repenting and believing the gospel and following Christ is righteousness and life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that we need is revealed from faith For faith, as it's written, the righteous, those who have been made righteous, will live by faith. The consequence of obedience to Christ by faith is righteousness and life. We who were once enslaved to sin with death as our consequences have been set free and now are obedient by faith in the gospel of Christ and our Christ, and Christ is our new master, and the consequences of that is righteousness and life. We have been set free. But wait a minute, Pastor, hang on. If we're enslaved to Christ, then why do we still sin? Because we still do. By the way, one of the biggest heresies in the American culture today is this sinless perfectionism that somehow if you come to faith in Christ, you don't sin anymore. Right? It's just not true. We know, right? We all still fall into sin and we do so every day in some level. In fact, we still commit horrific sins at times as believers. It can still happen. What does that mean? Does that mean that every time that we sin, we now have been re-enslaved to sin again? Does it mean that we change masters back and forth? Some people say that it's the truth, right? Does that mean that we lose and regain our salvation and only lose it again the next time that we sin? Or do we perpetually just, you know, are we, are we changing owners? Like about every 20 minutes in our lives? No. This is what Paul says in verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Paul's analogy of slave and slave master is a human idea that helps us to understand the truth, but it's not perfectly communicating what Paul is driving at. Remember, the question isn't, right? All in chapter six, never once does Paul ask the question, right? Will Christians sin or fall into sin from time to time? That's not the question that's being asked. The question is, if we're under grace, right? Then are we to sin or live a life of willful sin? Is is our lives supposed to be defined by sin because we're not under the law anymore, but under grace? That's the question, and Paul's overarching answer is no. A person who has come to faith in Christ has experienced a radical supernatural transformation. He has died to sin. He has been raised to new life. He has been taken out of Adam and placed into Christ. His sins are atoned for. His clothes, he's been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and he's been set free from sin. And he's committed himself to his new master, Jesus. So no. It's impossible for him to live a life dominated by sin. It's impossible for him to live a life defined by unrepentant sin. It's impossible for him to be enslaved to it again. And so it's not that we won't ever sin. It's not that we won't ever commit sins. It's not that, it's, it's that if you were in Christ, the truth is, if you were in Christ, you have been brought from death to life and and if you have repented and believed the gospel, your life will be marked by a continual willful obedience to Christ and not your sin. Your life will be marked by growing in obedience to Christ. And that obedience will produce something in your life. Notice what Paul says. For just as you once in the past presented your members... Or the parts of your body as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now this word sanctification, this is is important because Paul actually repeats it again in verse 22. He says, "But but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And it's end eternal life. Now, this is where Paul addresses the Christian life as we begin to struggle with the remaining sin in our lives. Paul introduces us to the idea of sanctification. Now, the word sanctification means to be set apart. Or the, the word sanctify means to be set apart. And sanctification then would be the act of setting something apart. And for the Christian, sanctification is the process by which God sets us apart from the rest of the world that is enslaved and covered up in sin. Sanctification is where Christians are being changed and transformed in such a way that we no longer are like the world anymore. We become different in the way that God is different from us, by the way. We become different to the world. That's why Christians stick out like sore thumbs. That's why we're so p- peculiar. That's why I don't fit in with some of the guys I hang out with when I, when I coach. They talk about things that I just don't talk about. They act in certain ways that I just don't act. I love them, they love me, but guess what? We are different. Right? In fact, sanctification is part of the process of our salvation. Right? It is part of how God is saving us right now. You see, salvation has several facets to it. And it all begins with regeneration. We are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit where God supernaturally changes our hearts. Remember, Jesus said, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they have been born again. Regeneration is where God takes your dead, takes who you were, dead in your sins, and makes us alive. And then there's justification. This is where we are saved by God from the penalty of our sins by grace through faith. Paul has argued throughout the beginning of Romans and the first part of Romans that the moment we put our faith in Christ, the moment we believe the gospel, we are justified, period, end of story. It is once and done. We are declared righteous. It is a judicial act of God. We're justified by faith. And it's not because of us. It's not because of what we can do for God. It's because of what Christ has done for us and then our faith in that. Our justification means God's justice has been satisfied on our behalf. And the penalty of that sin has been paid by the blood of Christ. And now we have peace with God. We are, in a very real sense, already saved. But later on, Paul will talk about glorification, And glorification is when we will finally in the future be completely saved from the presence of sin. We will be saved from sin's influence in our lives. It won't affect our minds and our hearts and our bodies anymore. This is when we will be with Christ either after our death or when he returns. This is where sin doesn't impact and influence your life. This is where the scriptures teach us that there is no more pain, that there is no more sorrow or tears. This is where God has restored the created order and it will be like it was supposed to be, that everything will be perfect and right. This is the final stage of our our salvation and this is the hope that we all long for. This is what we sang about this morning. How long, O Lord? This This is why we can say that salvation, as we talked about before, is already but not yet. But then we... But then as we live here and now, and you know, justified and saved from the penalty of sin, we are still influenced by sin. Remaining sin in our lives and sin from the rest of the world continues to impact us. And what Paul is drawing our attention to is the present tense reality of salvation. The fact that we are actively right now being saved. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are now, and we will one day be saved from the presence of sin. But right now we are being saved actively from the power of sin. Those who have been justified right now are being saved from the power of sin. And that is through the process of sanctification. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, is sanctifying you. He is changing you from the inside out, conforming you more and more into the image of Christ. That is the fruit of our obedience to the gospel. As Paul says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That is the marvelous truth that Paul is pushing us toward. Those who are in Christ will not live lives dominated by sin. Though they may sin, they will not be defined by it. And the remaining sin in their lives is being progressively dealt with by God through the power of the Holy Spirit through sanctification. God, by by the work of Christ justified you by faith, God right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is sanctifying you. He is slowly saving you from the power of remaining sin in your life. He is convicting you of your sin. He is changing you so that you will grow in holiness and obedience to God's commands. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will recognize this sanctification in your life. The sins that you once loved, you now hate. The things that, that didn't bother you before convict you. And if you're growing, if you and in you is a desire, a growing desire for holiness and obedience. And, and even though that you fall short, you recognize it. You recognize it and 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 you desire for God to change you. You if you're like me, you're like begging, Lord, change my heart. I don't want to be this way anymore. Sanctification is is the present tense part of salvation where you're being actively saved from the power of sin so that you can grow in obedience to God's commands. Now, as we wrap up chapter 6, it's important that we just take a couple of minutes and just unpack some things about sanctification. And The first thing we need to understand is that justification is a one-time judicial act of God where we are saved by grace through faith from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the ongoing act of God where we're being saved from the power of sin. Glorification is the final act where we will be saved from the presence of sin. So justification is where we've been saved in the past. Glorification is where we're going to be saved in the future. Sanctification is where we're being saved right now in the present. Now, an important distinction. It has, now, this is an important distinction that has huge implications for our life. Justification is by grace through faith, right? It's finished, right? And our responsibility is to rest in that truth. But sanctification is by grace and grace-driven effort. This is the third point I wanted you to keep in mind. This is what we're wrapping up with. Justification is where God, where Jesus' life and atonement and works are applied to you by grace and received by faith. Sanctification is where the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, works in us, sets us apart from the world, shaping us more and more to the image of Christ, creating in us a growth towards holiness and obedience. And we, by the grace of God, begin to actively cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We begin to respond in the way that we act, in the way that we behave, in the way that we choose. As Burke Parsons once wrote, just as our justification is from God, our sanctification is from God, but unlike our justification, which is monergistic or only the work of God alone, in sanctification, God calls us to work together with him to mature as Christians. This is the point where Paul's finally driving us to. What you'll see in the Christian life is those who truly belong to God will begin to grow towards spiritual maturity. They might not be mature right off, but their lives will not be dominated by sin as they mature in their faith. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. That is a fact. We are not saved by, by working really hard to obey the law. But those who have been saved by grace through faith, those who've been justified by God will not live lives completely dominated by sin like the rest of the world. They will grow as a byproduct of their justification towards holiness. They will grow in their ability and capacity to obey God and his law because the Holy Spirit through sanctification is at work in them, leading them, guiding them, convicting them and helping them to grow in maturity and obedience to God's command. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, and because they have a new nature, they will actively cooperate with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, right? Because this is an ongoing process. Though we may continue to fall short and sin at times in our lives will will trouble us, our lives will still be marked by a growing obedience over time. They will, over time, begin to overcome the remaining sin in their lives. They will, by grace-driven effort, pursue holiness, desire. or and by, by natural desire, they will want to honor God in how they live. Now, at the root of their salvation is Christ. The fruit of their salvation is sanctification. Now, what do we do with this? How do we, that's a lot, right? I mean, we've been through a lot in these first six chapters and the end of chapter six was a lot to take in. What do we do with this? Well, the first thing is if you're not in Christ, and I will always come back to the same place, if you're not in Christ, right? If you've not put your faith in him, I call you right now to repent and believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus and live, right? But secondly, if you have made a profession of faith in Christ, I I would, exhort everyone to examine their life to see if they're of the faith. Because if there's no real desire in you to live in holiness, if you're okay with unrepentance in your life, I would call you to examine yourself and see if you're really of the faith. F.F. Bruce said it well. He said, those who've been justified are now being sanctified. Those who have no experience of present sanctification have no reason to suppose that they've been justified. If your life is defined by unrepentant sin, I would call you then to confess that sin and turn to Christ by faith and repent and believe the gospel. Turn to him and be saved. Right? And, if, and if you're struggling with that, come talk to me. I got all the time in the world to sit down with you in the scriptures and show you how you can be saved. Now, finally, if you are in Christ right, and you see that you might not be perfect, but you're certainly not what you once were. I'm not who I'm supposed to be, but I'm not what I once was. And you have a desire for holiness and a desire to honor God in your life. Then I call you to continually surrender and actively cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in you. And the way that you do that is the basic stuff that we do as Christians, is we become sensitive to his leading. And that's accomplished not by sitting around in dark rooms, making weird noises, it's accomplished by availing yourselves of the ordinary means of grace that God has given us. Spending time with God in prayer, pouring out your heart to Him, and then spending time with Him in His Word, and then coming together with the body of Christ and worshiping the Lord with your heart and making it about Him and not about your experience. Right? Because let me remind you, What D.A. Carson once wrote, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, and obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convenience and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. If you're in Christ, I would call you towards spiritual maturity. That you would grow up in your faith. That you would participate and apply this grace-driven effort in your life by reading and studying your scriptures. And by regular prayer and by committing yourself to the body of Christ in Worship and in fellowship and in service and your commitment to the mission of Christ. That's how we avail ourselves of the grace-driven effort, trusting in the truth that we have already been saved in believing that if we will follow where God leads, He will perfect in us what He's already started. Words, by the way, that you can hold on to in the darkest moments even when you fall down in your faith, that He who began a good work in you